You know, uh, each year, uh, usually around this time, usually the end of September or thereabouts, Joanna and I and the boys usually go on a vacation. Uh, usually we try to line it up with their fall break, and we've been doing that for years. And uh, sometimes we go to the beach or we go kind of down, do something like that. And uh, one of the things that I kept seeing happening, particularly when they were little, uh, hopefully it's gotten better in recent years as I've kind of become aware of it. But we get to the end of the week. We go and it'd be this wonderful time together and kind of everything slows down and we don't have a, 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 a pressing schedule and we can just spend time together. But I get to the end of the week and uh, the last day before we came home, I'd always be really grumpy and I'd just feel it. I'd feel it on me and it was like I'd start to get kind of like irritated at things that shouldn't irritate you. And uh, it took a couple of years for me even to realize that it was happening on that day and in those times. And as I started to reflect on it, and hopefully now I see it a, a little more clearly, but it was like I was just sad that another year had passed because it was like it was like this moment in time that we were together as a family and now the boys are getting older every year and they're getting bigger and things are changing. And it was like wanting time to slow down and wanting to kind of hold on to it. And so it would kind of uh, bring up these emotions and these feelings in your heart and uh Hopefully when it kind of dawned on me uh, in recent years, I'm kind of prepared for it now. Like when we go, I know I'll get to the end of the week and I'll start to feel these things and, and what's going on. And, and so now it's kind of become a reminder. Uh, it's still bittersweet. It's still true. And other years pass and they're getting older. We're, we're to the point now where, where Asher's 17 and will be going off to college next year. And so all of a sudden it's like it feels even more intense. But that kind of bittersweetness of, of recognizing, though, that God's over all those seasons and he's in control of all those things and he's walking with us through those. And instead of trying to chase the days or, or slow them down, that we get to live in light of eternity and we get to see it in that way, that it's not just this limited time. And so now it kind of serves as a reminder instead of trying to hold on and slow those things down to see the glory of what is to come, the glory of what Jesus tells us about the hope that we have within him and what is coming and I was thinking about that this week because we're going to continue this week in what we call the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse takes place in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And we often refer to it as the Olivet Discourse because in Matthew 24 and verse 3, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and they started to ask him questions. And then Jesus is answering those questions. And so they sit there on this mountain Across from Jerusalem, we talked about this last week, Jesus leaves, this is Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, on the last week, he'll be crucified on Friday morning, and they leave Jerusalem, the temple, and they go down out of the Temple Mount, and they cross the Kidron Valley, and they go up and they sit down on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking back on Jerusalem. And he's beginning to tell them these things that are about to happen and what's coming, and what we talked about last week is he's telling his disciples some things and he makes this statement right at the beginning of chapter 24 where he tells them that the temple's going to be destroyed. They're looking at Jerusalem and his disciples say something about how beautiful it is. And he says, it's going to be wiped out. It's going to be gone. And so they ask him three questions. They ask him, well, when is that going to be? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And then they ask, and the sign of your second coming, what's the sign of your coming and then lastly, they asked the sign of the end of the age. And so last week, if you were here with us, what we looked at is Jesus really answers that question in verses four down through 28, where I think he's talking about the temple. And I showed you the reasons why I think that's the case. And he's talking about what's happened and the way the temple was destroyed. And we know from history that everything that Jesus is talking about with the temple being destroyed came to be in 70 A.D., 
As a Roman general, Titus, led the army and Rome sieged the city and they locked it in for five months and so many people starved and then they burned it to the ground. And we talked about that last week, but this week we're going to kind of turn as Jesus does as he starts to then talk about what's still future and what's to come. And he's talking about his second coming and he's talking about the end of the age and what's going to happen. What we often refer to as eschatology, the end times or the end things. And we're going to look at that together today as Jesus is answering that question. And then next week, we'll kind of do part three, because in chapter 25, he then turns and talks about the judgment that comes at the end when he does return. We won't get to that today, but we're going to take that second part where he's showing them what is to come and the signs and what it looks like. And so the way I want us to look at this passage is like this. First, I just want us to think of the big picture of his second coming. I think sometimes it gets real confusing. Maybe it's confusing to you. Maybe it's kind of muddled in your mind and what happens and when and what that looks like. I actually think the Bible is much simpler than we often make it, but I'll show you why I say that. So we're going to consider big picture of his second coming, big idea there and what he says here. And then secondly, what he says about when it will be. And then lastly, how he tells us to live in light of this, right? So big picture, when will it be? How do we live in light of it. And so let's just start with the big picture of what he says about his second coming. And so as you're reading through, we looked at this last week, we got up to verse 28. And then all of a sudden he starts to change and he starts to kind of switch and starts to talk about his second coming because he's talked about all these things with the temple, but then he starts to talk about a second coming. And I think he begins in verse 30 when he says this, then will appear in heaven the the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of the man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And I think there he starts to shift and he starts to talk about what is to come and what's happening. Uh, there's, there's a connector there in verse 29. There's a lot of debate over what he's saying and what he's talking about in that I believe Jesus is talking about what's going to happen with the destruction of the temple up to verse 28. And then 29, he's talking about immediately after the tribulation of those days that he's talking about from then the temple all the way until his second coming. The Bible talks about those days are the last days. And when it does, it's often talking about Jesus's ascension and then to his second coming. And all of that is considered the last day. So those times. And I think that's what he's saying. But then he starts to talk about what it will look like in his second coming. And he gives us this description. And I want to remind you one of the things that he was saying that we looked at last week. He talks about all the things that will come and all these signs and there'll be wars and famines and all this. And then he talks very specifically about uh, the temple being destroyed. And he's talking about all those things. But then he keeps warning in the middle of that when these things happen And he's talking about the temple being destroyed. He says, these are the beginning of the birth pains. It's just starting. And he says, so don't be duped. Don't be taken. If people come and they say, Jesus is here and he's come again. Like look at uh, verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will perform great signs and wonders as so to lead people astray. If possible, even the elect But see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or if they say he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then he says this in verse 27. I want you to see this because there's a connection here between what he says in 30 and 31. In verse 27, he says, for as the lightning comes 
from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. And so he's saying, don't believe if people say I've already come. Don't think that you've missed it. Because when I do come, it's going to be like the lightning from the east and the west. And you're going to see it and you're going to know and there'll be no doubt. And he says, so don't be duped by that. And so Jesus is telling us that and he's kind of setting that up and he's telling us what it looks like. And I think he's saying the same thing in verse 30 and 31. When the sign of the son of man comes and he appears and he's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory and he will send out angels with a loud trumpet call. There's nothing secret about this. There's nothing that we're going to miss that nobody's going to not see that. He says from east to west, the angels call. You're going to see him coming in glory. And Jesus says this. And he's telling us that this is what it's going to look like. And I think what he says here is exactly what scripture says all the way through. I'm thinking of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes and he gets to the end of that chapter. And he says, I have a word from the Lord. Uh, don't be upset about those that have come before, those that have already died. They're going to be called up and we're all going to come together. And he says this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you want to turn there and look at it with me. I think we're going to put it up there on the screen as well. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 15 through 18. So if you're in the Pew Bible, that's on 1230 if you want to look at it. But look at, listen to what he says in verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you by a word of the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right. And so remember, part of his argument last week is he's talking about the things that are going to happen. And he says, don't think that you've missed it. Because it's going to be really clear, like the lightning from the east to the west. Same thing what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. When Jesus comes, there's going to be the cry of the archangel, and you're going to hear it. And he's going to come on the clouds in glory. And this is the picture that the Bible gives. And so I think both of those actually go together. And I think they're, they're describing the same thing. And so when we think big picture of what happens in Jesus' return, the first thing that I want you to see is that he says it's going to be visible. It's going to be clear. You're going to know it. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be really obvious when he returns. But then there's some confusion that starts to take place, I think, within our understanding of end times. And maybe you have some of this, maybe you don't. But I talked about last week some of the works that have come out through the years. We talked about the Left Behind series, right? Left Behind series was a popular fiction work, uh, a bunch of books that came out were really, really popular. One of the best-selling Christian books of all time. And that book had a, a very kind of narrow view of the end times and the way it works. And then a lot of it's just embellished because it's a story, a fiction story to read as a good story that you would want to keep reading and buy more books and all that goes with that. But one of the things that happened is left behind cast a very large shadow on our culture. Like a whole lot of things about the end times. And a lot of times we end up getting our theology from popular culture like that. We've seen a movie, we read a book, we go, oh, that must be the way it is. And instead of going back to what the Bible says, we end up kind of getting all kinds of muddled ideas on what it looks like. And so if we miss the context about what Jesus is talking about, 
I made this case last week. And if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to what I hit on last week. But I made the case last week that Jesus is telling you all these things at the beginning of this passage about the destruction of the temple, which have already taken place. But sometimes people will take that section and go, no, no, that's still future. And it hasn't happened yet. And then it's this puzzle of trying to put all these things together. I don't think it's that. I don't think that's the case. And I think it's much simpler than that. Those things that he's talking about as far as the temple have taken place and they're there. And so what happens, though, is if we mix that up, then we have to account for those things. And what's the order and how does that work? And right. And it leads to all sorts of questions. And so one of those conceptions becomes, well, there's going to be a rapture that comes before and some people are taken out and then Jesus will come later. I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I don't believe that's the case. I believe Jesus comes back one time and it is visible and it's clear and we all go. If you are in Christ, you are called out and you go with them and then Jesus brings his kingdom right then and there. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. And by the way, if you disagree with me, that's okay. As long as we're holding that Jesus is the one that does this and it's by grace through faith and what he's done, we can disagree on end times things. We can hold different views and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to explain to you why I say that and why I think that's the case. And so there's this idea of the rapture. Maybe you've heard that before, right? Maybe you have that idea in your mind and the Bible talks about rapture. And you go, well, where does it talk about that in the Bible? And it's what happens a lot of times, depending on how you see that, people like to use straw man arguments. You know what a straw man argument is? I say you believe something that you don't actually believe and then I attack the false belief that you don't actually hold. It's not helpful at all, right? Do you understand why? Because I'm now arguing with you against something that you don't even believe or maybe you argue against me with something I don't believe. And so what happens is people will talk about the rapture. And you know what people will say? Like the, the camp that I'm in, Jesus comes back once, it's all the other. they'll go, the rapture's not even in the Bible. Have you ever heard that before? It doesn't even say rapture. And you know what? Technically, they're right. The word rapture is never used in the Bible. It's not there. You can't find it. If you do a word search for rapture in the Bible, it's not there. But what they are talking about when we talk about the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we just read. Right? It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, so when Jesus returns, we will be caught up together to, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so always be with the Lord. And so that word caught up is where we get the word rapture from, right? The Greek word is not the word that we use for rapture. It's not there. Herbazo is not the word that we get rapture from. But what happened is in the Latin translation, they translated with the word that's our derivative of rapture. That's where that word came from, just so you're clear. But the Bible was originally written in Greek. We're reading it in English. Neither one of those words actually means rapture. And so when somebody goes, rapture's not in the Bible, technically they're right. But what do we mean when we say the rapture? That we're called up to meet Jesus in the air. The Bible absolutely says that, right? And so if that's your definition of what a rapture is, to be called out, that's what the Bible says. It's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to be called up to meet him in the air. But then what about the idea that there's a secret rapture that we're called up, that some people go up and then all of a sudden, like left behind, right? Yes, you're nodding. Some of you have read it or watched the movie. Suddenly, a bunch of people are gone. Oh, what happened? Where did they go, right? And that's what happens, and that's kind of the premise of the book and all that. But what I think the Bible tells us 
is part of that is some will be called up and some won't. Those that are in Christ will, and those that aren't will not. And so some will be left. Jesus actually says that. It's right here in our passage. Look at what it says in verse 36 and following. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the son of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and it swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the son of man. So it does talk about it coming suddenly and without warning, it's going to happen. But then what he says is, verse 40, two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. It's where left behind came from, right? One's left, one's taken, one's left. That's what happened, right? The next verse, it says two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will left, one will be left. So it does say, right, the lady grinding there at the millstone and the guy working in the field, they're going to be left behind, yes? But here's the part where I think we miss the fullness of what the Bible is saying. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you start to look at what Paul's saying, and you look at the language of what Jesus is saying here in verse 27, and then in verse 30 and 31, I think they're all talking about the same event, right? Because Jesus talks about the angel and the cry, and he's coming on the clouds. Paul says the same thing in First Thessalonians. They seem to line up in all these ways. He says, when we hear his voice, we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But here's the part that I want us to see to make sure that we get the fullness of what he's talking about. The words and the language that Paul uses when he talks about meeting him, being called up and meeting him in the air, the language that he's using, the word that he uses for meeting him in the air has a very specific connotation in in the first century in Greek that he's talking about. And so meeting them in the air in this way is like, uh, I'll give you an example that used to happen in the first century. Roman soldiers would go out to conquer the next town, the next place, the next whatever, right? And they would go out and they would do their thing and they'd be at war and they'd be at battle and they would win their battle. And so they would send the evangelists back to tell everybody the good news. Do you know what an evangelist was? Right? We say evangelist today for someone that spreads the good news of Jesus and what he's done. An evangelist in the first century was someone who spread the good news of King Caesar, And the Roman Empire, which, by the way, side note, the language of evangelism and evangelists that the early church used was extremely subversive to the Roman Empire. Because it was saying, we really have one king, and it's Jesus, not Caesar. And there's really good news, and it's what God has done for us in Jesus, not what Caesar does. But in that language, the evangelist would run back to the town and say, hey, we won. We won the battle. All hail Caesar and the great Roman Empire. And everybody would go, yeah, we won the battle. And then he'd say, they're coming back. Let's go out to meet them. And everybody would get up and they'd leave the town and they'd go outside the town to meet them as they're coming in. And they'd meet them outside the gates and there'd be a big celebration. And then they'd welcome them back in as they all come in together. It says this a few times in the Bible. It's not just there in in the culture that we know this, but even the few times that it talks about that same word in the Bible. If you do a word study on what he's talking about, about meeting them there, you see the same things. You see it actually in the very next chapter in Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus is telling this parable. He says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they went to sleep. But at midnight, there was a cry. 
here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Right? Same word. Or, or in Acts chapter 28, Paul is, is going to visit the early church and he's going from place to place. And he says, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Do you understand what they're saying? I'll give you an example from probably your own life. At least for mine, I can think of it. Uh, friends, family, loved ones that are coming to visit from a long way away. Right? So I remember my grandparents come to visit when I'm a kid. And we'd be going, when are they going to get here? When are they going to get here? My mom would go, oh, they're going to be here at like 3 o'clock. And so at like 2.45, me and my brothers and my sister, we'd go outside. We're going to go outside to wait on them. And we'd go out to the driveway or the end of the driveway or we'd wait in our street. And then they'd see them coming and we'd be like, yes, they're here. All right. Right? Like grandparents or cousins. Or, and you're so excited. And then what did you do? You met them and then you brought them into the house. They're here. The language that Paul uses in First Thessalonians is we're going to be called up into the air. And Jesus is going to come with the cry of the command of the archangel. And we're going to see his glory light up the skies. And he's going to call us up to meet him. And then he's going to bring his kingdom in full. We're there to usher all of this back in with him. We're not being called out secretly to go away. We're being called up because this is it. Jesus is here. He's returning and it's all coming true now. And the fullness of his kingdom comes. And I think what the Bible tells us is it's a lot simpler than we often make it. That at the end of time, Jesus is going to come and he's going to set up his glorious kingdom. And that's it. And it's a beautiful picture of him returning and us being called out to welcome him as his kingdom is now ushered in. And I tell you, I think that's the case because I think so many of the things that we try to make it, well, maybe it happens this way and it happens in stages and all these things is because I think we're trying to attribute things that have already happened to things that are in the future when they've already happened. And so what the Bible tells us real clearly is Jesus is going to return. It's going to be obvious and clear when he does. And when he does, it all happens at once. He's here and now he's here and this is his kingdom and he ushers it in. And then there's going to be judgment and then he's going to put away all those that are uh, opposed to him. And he's going to do all of that and bring the new heavens and the new earth and it all happens at once. And I think the Bible's pretty clear on that. But I think sometimes we get kind of lost in the weeds and we try to make it more complicated than it actually is. And so big picture. But then the second question I just want us to ask was, well, when does this happen? I'm going to be pretty short on this point because verse 36, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man, right? So think about that analogy that Jesus uses. So the days of Noah, right? He says to Noah, flood is coming, get ready for it. And Noah does, and he builds the ark and he listens and whatever, and everybody else laughs at him. And he goes, yeah, right. There's going to be this great big flood. Sure. And no one believes. And then one day, all of a sudden, the rain starts. And he says, it's going to be the same way. But no one knows the time. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. The Bible talks a lot about Jesus' second coming. There's established fact of scripture that Jesus is coming and he tells us that. But he never once tells us that so that we would speculate on when it is. Not once. And so I would just say to you, and I said this last week, but I'll say it again. 
It's important for us to be reminded of that. It's so easy for us to get, uh, I called it last week, eschatological rubbernecking. Right? To slow down and look and try to figure it out. And this means this. I don't think that does any good. And in fact, Jesus is saying the opposite. Don't do that because you're not going to miss it. It's going to be really, really clear. And so the idea that we're going to then try to figure all these things out, and this means this, and we take all this time to try to figure something out that Jesus says that we're not going to know, I don't think is real helpful. But the second thing about the timing, and this is really important of what he says here, when he says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, that they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they were unaware that the flood came until it swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We don't know the time, but I think what the Bible teaches and what it tells us is that it could be at any moment. Although we don't know it, it could be at any moment. We could, we could walk out of here today and Jesus could return today. That it could be at any moment, that it's imminent. And I think when you start to look at what the Bible actually says and what it teaches, he tells us to live that way and he tells us that is true. Uh, jokingly, it's not a joke, but I, I said this, I was telling Mike this before. Last night I was walking and I was preaching. I'd do this if you want to see a crazy person walk through my neighborhood. I walk and preach to myself as I walk around the neighborhood. Last night I was doing it under the cover of darkness so nobody can see me talking to myself. But as I'm going through it, and I'm, and I'm saying, and, and the lightning across the sky, I looked up, and right above me was the line of the Starlink satellites going across. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, there's all these satellites that have been put up by Elon Musk, so everybody can have internet or something. But it's really cool. It's a whole line of them, of a light going. And I'm not joking. As I'm preaching this, I looked up, and it went right over my head. And I was like, Whoa! And for like a split second, it's like, is he coming right now? He could be. I'm not joking when I say that. It could be today. It could be this very day that Jesus returns. And although we don't know the time and he doesn't tell us to speculate, what he does tell us is that it could be at any time. And that we should live expectantly in light of that. And so all of what he's saying here is that he is coming and it's going to be visible And you're not going to miss it. And it could be at any time. Even though we don't know the time, it could be at any time. And so as we think about that, I want us just to think about this together for just a second. How do you live in light of that? If that's true and that's the, the way it all holds together, and if you don't see it all quite like that, we can talk about that. We can continue to have those discussions. But I think Jesus can return at any moment. I think he can return at any time. So how should we then live? And he tells you here. And he tells you it'll be like the days of Noah and it could come at any time. And then verse 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man and coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does Jesus say? He says to live expectantly that he is returning. And because of Jesus's death and his resurrection and who he is and what he's done, we know he is coming back. It is a certainty. He is going to return. And he says you live in light of that certainty. And the way he says it there is to stay awake. Verse 42, therefore stay awake. What does it mean to stay awake? Think about when you become a believer. The Bible talks about this a lot. Being awake versus being asleep. Being alive versus being dead even. Right? That when you become a believer and you put your faith in Jesus, you go from death to life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. And so what does it mean to be stay awake when Jesus says that? When you put your faith in Christ and the spirit comes and dwells within you, you now see past just the physical world. You know there's more than that. Right? We're seeing who God is and the way he's moving and what he's done for us in Jesus and what it looks like. And there's a depth and a richness that you now hold in your life. And he says, don't lose that. Don't go to sleep. Right? Even the example he gives of the one that the master has set over his house. He says, well, if he says, my master is delayed... And then he goes and he gets drunk and he beats the other servants and he does whatever. That's somebody who's fallen asleep. And so what does it look like to fall asleep? What it looks like to fall asleep is you start to live just for this life and the here and now and nothing else. Because you're not seeing the fullness of what it means to be awake, to be alive in Christ. And so what Jesus is calling us to in light of his return, which is imminent, that could happen at any day, is to live the fullness of who he is in all things and stay awake. I heard years ago, I think, I want to attribute the right person, I think it was Tim Keller. He was talking about doing funerals. I've done a lot of funerals now at this point in my life. And I knew exactly what he meant. He said, oftentimes at funerals, what we do is we, we try to comfort the person and we try to talk people through loss and we go, hey, it'll be okay. And with time, time heals wounds and it'll start to get back to normal and all these kind of things that we say. And what Dr. Keller said in the middle of that is he said, I've been thinking that maybe that when we stand at a funeral and we're very aware of our mortality and what's happening, maybe it's then that we're seeing things are right. Maybe then we're actually seeing things as they are instead of let's get back to normal and put that aside and pretend like that's not true. But what if we lived in light of that we, our life is just, as James says, uh, the mist that vanishes before dawn. It's just a breath. That God gives us just this moment in eternity that we get to live by faith in this way. How would that change the way we live and what it looks like? What would it look like to stay awake? And I think the reality of everything that Jesus calls us to and what he tells us and what he says is it means that we would continue to live for his glory. To make it about him. I am fully convinced of this. And I, and I will tell you, there's times of unbelief in my own heart where I don't live this way. 
But I am fully convinced that there is nothing that I will do in my life giving it away for the glory of God that I will ever regret. Right? When the sky opens and you hear the cry of the archangel and the voice of our master and our king and he shows up, there's nothing when you see him that you're going to look at and be like, I wish I would have spent more time on my phone. I wish I would have watched a few more movies. It's not going to happen. Everything that you did for his glory and his honor is going to look like, oh, I wish I could have done more. I'm so certain of that. And so when he says, stay awake, I want you to even think about Jesus saying, stay awake. It's because he loves you. He knows his ways are better. And that if you stay awake and you continue to fix your eyes on him, right, you continue to look to Jesus and you continue to trust him in all things, you will never regret it. And your greatest joy and happiness will be found in that always. And how easy it is for us to forget that. And so please, as we think about end time, we can get into end times and this means this and this timing means this. The most important part is that Jesus has come and he is coming again. And we are going to stand before him. And we get just this moment of our life to live for his glory and his honor. And oh, that that would be the heart's overflow. That we would see that. We'd see the fullness of who he is and that we would love him in those ways while we have this chance in these moments before he returns. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that you have come and that you have completed that work, that you have succeeded where we have failed, that you stood in our place, that you took the wrath that we deserve. We thank you that you are coming again and that when you come, you are going to set all things right. Lord, we pray that we would see the reality of the hope that we have in you, that we would see it today. You tell us that that biblically that hope is a, a certainty into what is to come because of who you are. And so let us live in that certainty. Let us live trusting you in all things and in all ways, that we would live our lives staying awake, seeking to make much of you in everything. God, give us the opportunity to do that just this week. I pray for the areas of our heart where we're not seeing that fully, where maybe we're, we're turning our focus to things that are temporary, that you would realign us. Realign us with your spirit and your will and what you have for us in our life, and that we would live lives that are fully awake to who you are, and what you've done for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.